five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. This week, we're featuring a Future in Space Operations teleconference with NASA historian Roger Launius, who spoke about his new book, Apollo's Legacy, Perspectives on the Moon Landings. As we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission, it's important to look back at the time of the Apollo program in the 60s and early 70s to better understand the motivations of the program and what was happening in the world at that time. Lonius provides that unique view. I was five years old in 1969, and I remember sitting on the floor in the living room of our small apartment in Saint-Lambert on the south shore of Montreal, watching Neil Armstrong descend the steps of the lunar module to become the first human to set foot on the moon. I had no idea until many years later that in the community next to us, Longueuil, a company called Heru, had built the Apollo 11 lunar landing legs. Twenty minutes after Armstrong stepped foot on the moon, Edwin Buzz Aldrin became the second human to set foot on the moon. I was awed at what I was seeing, though not really grasping the historic significance of the moment. As a five-year-old, I was inspired by the Apollo 11 mission. My curiosity and imagination were further fueled by books I would later read. Eventually, I would find a path that would lead me to a career within the space community. There's no way I could have known that as I watched Neil and Buzz walk on the moon when I was five years old, that many years later, I would find myself on a committee with Buzz and listening to him, agreeing with a comment I had made. That was surreal. Then a few years later, Buzz would call me at home and say he had talked to a colleague of mine about a Phobos precursor mission, and did I have a few minutes to talk about it? I made the time. This week is a time to enjoy what happened 50 years ago, but it is also a time where some of our youth will be inspired. 50 years from now, I hope that on the 100th anniversary, humans are celebrating on a permanent moon base or an outpost on Mars, and maybe even the furthest reaches of our solar system. Listen in. So, um, Roger, the floor is yours, and the very first question comes from the main, the primary moderator, me, and that is to explain to us the type, uh, the font that you have on the cover of your book. So everybody, um, <laughs> mute your microphone, and Roger's going to explain that. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> it looks a little futuristic, <laughs> but uh, you know, there's you know, there's uh, there's there's definitely uh, uh, some misformed A's in this uh, in this particular thing. Uh, anyway, this is sort of a plug um, uh, and you know a, a description of the book that uh, is forthcoming. It'll be out first part of May. I just got my advanced copies last week. And uh, so it should hit the bookstores and and Amazon and wherever else in the next few days. Um, but it's like so many other books that are appearing this uh, 50th anniversary of Apollo. This one sort of looks at the uh, at the program, but doesn't try to narrate the story as much as it tries to uh, talk about the importance of it. And so that's really the 
the focus of this particular book. If you if you go to the second slide, and Harley, I'm assuming you just want me to carry on. Uh, or yeah, yeah. Folks okay. Will, right, folks, folks will ask questions, and please do, folks, uh, yeah. as they come up. But yeah, keep on, keep on, keeping on. Okay. If you go to the second slide, you'll see a list of the chapters, and, and I'll just I'll, I'll briefly mention them. Uh, uh, that first chapter really looks at uh, the versions of reality that we talk about. I'll speak more about that. But there are essentially four interpretations of Apollo that uh, have come down to us. There's a dominant one and sort of three counter uh, interpretations, three counter narratives in terms of this. Uh, in the second chapter, A Moment in Time, I talk about the Kennedy decision to go to the moon and the uniqueness of that. Uh, the third chapter looks at the technology and how powerful and important it was. Uh, the fourth chapter looks at the astronauts uh, and uh, their heroic image and why they have that heroic image and how it has stayed with us low these many years. Fifth chapter talks about the science on Apollo, the importance of that. Uh, the sixth chapter looks at imagery, and I really focus in on five key images. Uh, and and what those meant for us in terms of how we think about uh, the moon landings. Uh, and then the seventh chapter talks about how, and NASA tried to do this in the 60s and into the 70s with mixed results, how they might try to export the knowledge gained in Apollo to solve other types of problems. And there, there are some that, that do lend themselves to a technological fix, but a lot of things don't. The most difficult ones clearly don't. Um, and then the eighth chapter, I'm not going to talk about that too much today, but Apollo and the religion of spaceflight. Let me suggest to you that uh, that uh, spaceflight has a, uh, a religious set of connotations associated with it. It has all the major ingredients that one thinks of when they think of a religion. It has saints. It has martyrs. It has, it has holy writ. Uh, it has a salvation uh, belief about getting off this planet and thereby becoming a multiplanetary species and, and so forth. All of that's at play here, and I, I talk about that in that particular chapter. Uh, the ninth chapter uh, looks at the issues of, of some of the uh, Apollo sites and what has happened to them over the years. Some have been very well maintained and preserved for us, like Mission Control Center down in Houston. Uh, some of them have been used for other purposes, like Launch Complex 39. Some have been abandoned in place, like Launch Complex 34. And uh, and the most difficult one that I talk about is the landing sites on the moon itself and what might happen to those in the future. Um, and then my tenth chapter, which is just a really fun chapter, is those who try to deny the moon landings ever took place, and we've all met these people. Um and sometimes it's said tongue-in-cheek and in jest, but a lot of times it's not. And then finally, I have a conclusion that sort of – and those are the chapters of the book. Uh, if you move on to the, to the third slide, uh, so this is my framework. This is the master narrative, the master interpretation, and very important variations. Um, and the first is the one that's dominant. You're going to hear about this over and over again. We've heard about it over and over again in the past as well, that it's a, that's an, an example of American triumph and exceptionalism and success. And it really does fall into uh, a fundamental belief about what we think about ourselves, uh, that we can do anything we set our minds to, 
and that especially when the chips are down, when our back is to the wall, like whatever other uh, cliche you can think of uh, for being in trouble, uh, that's when we rise to the occasion and achieve success. And that is demonstrated over and over again in American history. And Apollo is a terrific example of it. And that's what we'll hear about as we go through the Apollo um, anniversary this, this particular year. But there's two criticisms of the, of the program, one from the political left and one from the political right, that it were enunciated in the 1960s and remain a persistent drumbeat up to the present. Uh, the first one on the political left was it's a waste of money because we could use that money to do good things for people here on Earth. And we're ignoring those problems that we have in society. And instead, we're and the term that's often used, we're wasting those resources on another purpose. Um, We've all heard this in the past. We heard it uh, uh, from politicians on the left. You've heard it from activists on the left. You've heard it in a variety of other settings. Um, and, and that has been, again, a persistent sort of subtext of this story since the 1960s. Uh, the third narrative, the third variation on the theme is the criticism from the political right, both at the time and since. Uh, we we don't necessarily remember that very much, but uh, Republicans led by, I might add, yeah. Dwight D. Eisenhower um, said that this was a waste of, of resources and we should be expending our resources in a different way. And he thought that the best way to expend those resources was in national security issues, that space flight is very much a part of that. And that's where we need to put our focus, not on some sprint to the moon. And then uh, finally, and, and by the way, th that has continued up to the present as well. And we've seen it in a variety of very high-level uh, analyses of of, um, uh, of the 1960s uh, by historians and others since that time uh, who basically cast Apollo as an example of the great society efforts of the 1960s. You can make a case that it was. You can also make the case that it wasn't. But um, and, and and like those other programs, this was an example of something that uh, that uh, was probably better left undone. And uh, and even Walter McDougall and some of you may have heard of his book that won the Pulitzer Prize in 1985. Uh, called The Heavens and the Earth, which is a political history of the space age, uh, referred specifically, and here's almost a direct quote, that Apollo was a product of the maniacal 60s. So that's a criticism from the political right. And then finally, there are the people out there who believe we never went at all, and it was all a conspiracy. Um, that's a fascinating area to look at. I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, as we move forward. But there is a small percentage of the American public, usually about 5% is the numbers that pop up when you see opinion polls, uh, which is a very small percentage. Uh, you know, that's often the margin of error for a major uh, uh, public opinion poll. So uh, it's not something necessarily one should worry about too much. But uh, but there's that group out there that are persistent in terms of uh, of their denial of the moon landings. They have reasons why they think so. Those reasons are in every single case 
um, ridiculous, and um, uh, yet they are able to gain an audience. And the problems associated with this in our modern era in which communication is so uh, uh so easy for everyone is the is the broadcast of these uh ideas through the internet on on, on all kinds of uh, social media and so on and so forth reaching an audience who never would have heard them 30 years ago uh and that's something that uh that I personally take is something that's really significant for us going forward. And as time passes and as fewer and fewer people uh, who remember the moon landings, uh, as people start to pass from the scene, and we're already seeing with this, the, this with the astronauts, um, th there's more likelihood that, uh, uh, that, this that this cult of conspiracy, this conspiracy theory, this moon hoax, as it's called, will probably rise in terms of the number of people who accept it. Okay, let's go to the next slide. This is slide four. So um, I just want to do something simple here. Um, so the idea of American exceptionalism goes back to the very birth of the republic. And uh, Americans in the 1770s were talking about how the United States uh, born as it was uh, in controversy and dedicated to a democratic set of principles uh, was unique and different and somehow and especially uh, significantly better than all that had gone before. And uh, and so that sense of American exceptionalism has been present from the very beginning, and it suggests that that we as Americans have succeeded in doing things that other nations have been unable to do because of that. Now, there's all kinds of pieces and threads to this. When you start pulling on it, it uh, it, it doesn't necessarily hold up very well. But we do believe as a as a as a nation that uh that we can accomplish a great deal pretty much anything we set our minds to and especially in the context of a crisis when there's something that happens that uh that we really think we have to rise to the occasion to to overcome we have demonstrated that we can do that repeatedly um and so that exceptionalism is born uh it is it is uh uh, reinforced periodically, and Apollo is one of the greatest examples of that reinforcement. Uh, and, and the whole space race environment of the late 50s into the 60s is really is an example of this. In 1957, the Soviet Union launches Sputnik. It's a shock to the system. Uh, Americans feel the need to respond to this. Um, Yuri Gagarin flies in 1961. There's a, uh, there's a series of other Russian firsts that take place uh, during the same time frame. And the result of that is uh, an American uh, decision to move out on the moon landing by the end of the decade. And then, of course, we did it. So, um, uh, so moving from a point where we were being uh, beaten by a rival to one in which we uh, claim triumph at the end of the decade is a big story uh, that fits beautifully into the American exceptional idea. Alex Rowland, who was uh, a historian at the NASA History Office long before I was there, uh, made a comment a number of years ago, and I like the quote. Uh, he referred to it not so much as history, 
uh, and the Apollo story is how it's usually told. It's not so much history as tribal rituals meant to comfort the old and indoctrinate the young. There's some truth to that, only some truth. Um, uh, and, and like any truism, it's got just as many uh, issues on one side as the other. But I do think that this sense of success and triumph in Apollo has been the one dominant theme that we've got in this. We, it will continue to be dominant, and uh, and we will see it in so many ways uh, as we go through this 50th anniversary year. Uh, let's move on to the, the slide five. So uh, that should be a moment in time rather than time, but be that as it may, um, I, 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 let me take you back to 1961 for a moment, uh, a unique situation that uh, some of you will recall, others and most of you probably will not, but um, the United States responds to a set of crises that take place in the spring, in April actually, of 1961 by, with the decision to go to the moon. And uh, John Kennedy, who's relatively new president, um, a, a, a relative, well, the youngest president at the time, uh, not necessarily seasoned in ways that his predecessors had been, and uh, is often viewed by people before the Apollo decision as someone who may not be up to the job. That, uh, you know, he might be good looking and he might be charismatic, but he may not have the, the wherewithal to do the things necessary to be successful as a president. And, uh, and that is sort of played out with the launch on the 12th of April of Yuri Gagarin, uh, and, and in which the Soviet Union, which is this massive rival in the Cold War, uh, global Cold War between two competing uh, economic and political systems that were really locked in a death struggle. There's no question about that. And um, and it's very hard to think back to that time frame uh, and fully comprehend how serious that was, unless you sort of lived through it and, and are well familiar with it. Um, it's, you know, I, I do a fair amount of teaching these days, and... Um, and, and I, I'm reminded of the fact that college freshmen this year were not alive when 9-11 took place. They don't have an understanding of that uh, beyond what they've heard from their parents. And the, the same is even more true when we talk about a Cold War environment. They don't remember the Cold War, and they don't have, have a sense of how serious this was. And um, and that's true for, for lots of people, well over half the uh, uh, citizenry of the U.S. has been born since the 1970s. So the the idea that this was a death struggle uh, is sort of lost on a lot of people. And uh, and 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 Kennedy's response to that was to announce on the 25th of May of 1961 that he was going to send astronauts to the moon and return them safely to the Earth by the end of the decade. That's the picture that you see in the upper right. That's the speech to a joint session of Congress uh, in May of that particular year. Now, his decision to do that uh, was predicated on a set of fact-finding that was done under the uh, uh, leadership of Lyndon Johnson, who was his vice president. 
and Johnson had been closely tied to the uh, to NASA and the space program since its inception. Um, he was um, very much an advocate for actions uh, for NASA, and uh, and reviewing the technical possibilities as well as the political possibilities, they came up with this decision to go to the moon by the end of the decade. And it was. There is no question that it was fundamentally uh, a Cold War initiative. How do we respond to the Soviet Union's success? And I might add, not just Yuri Gagarin, uh, something very earthly took place less than a week after uh, Gagarin's flight, and that was the aborted uh, disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, uh, in which American-backed Cubans were going to try to overthrow Castro. It did not go well. Uh, and by the middle of the month, Kennedy is trying to figure out a way to change the subject. The news cycles are all against him. What can I do that's forthright? So, so that's a major issue in the context of, of what's taking place in uh, in April of that year, when he gives the speech, on the left is the Herblock cartoon that appeared the day before uh, he gave that speech. Uh, and some of you may remember Herblock, the great uh, political cartoonist who was always in the Washington Post. Um, you can see a, a, a rocket in the background. It happens to be a, a mercury capsule on top of a, of a redstone uh, labeled Accelerated Space Program. Kennedy in a spacesuit talking to Congress saying, fill her up, I'm in a race. And that was very clearly what was taking place. Um, Kennedy wasn't sure that this was going to go. When he made the speech, he he had a written text in which he said, you know, this is going to be expensive and it's going to take a long time. And if you're not willing to do it, well, let's let's not even start. Um, but and so that's in the written text. But if you listen to the speech itself, which is available on YouTube, if you want to if you want to watch it, um, he returns to that same theme at the end of his speech in which he, he sort of ad-libs another paragraph which says, I know this is going to be very expensive. This is going to cost a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of time and energy. I think we should do this. But if you disagree with me, meaning Congress, then tell me now. Let's not start this process and then stop halfway through. Um, and at the end of the speech, he's going back to the White House, and Ted Sorensen, his speechwriter, is with him in the limousine. And uh, Kennedy sort of tells him, you know, I'm not sure they're going to buy this this uh, going to the moon business. And uh, you know, they didn't exactly jump up and applaud when I announced this, and they didn't. If you look, if you watch the speech, you will see that it's that it's fairly restrained applause. You know, there's not a standing ovation or anything like that. And uh, Sorensen looks at him and says, "Don't worry." The vice president has the Congress under control, and he did. Johnson was a master of the Congress. He knew how to make things happen there, and uh, he called in chits. He uh, he sometimes would uh, uh, cajole. Sometimes he would threaten uh, to get the way on something that he wanted, and he was successful. They didn't even bother to have a voice vote or to have anything more than a voice vote on the first NASA appropriation after that. Uh, now, the next year, 
1962, there's an attack on the NASA budget, and there's one every year thereafter. But that first year, they they approved it very quickly and easily as uh, to plus up the budget to make this a reality. Um, the picture that you can see in the lower right is Kennedy talking to Khrushchev. And in the first part of June of 1961, they had their one and only summit. took place in Geneva. And... Um, the uh, and, and the first day of the summit, Kennedy, in response to something that he had heard, uh, well, in fact, point blank, his budget director, David Bell, came in to talk to him and said, look, uh, NASA is going to break the bank uh, with this moon landing program. We really need to find a way to, to reduce these costs. And uh, Kennedy talks to Khrushchev and says, you know, maybe we should do this moon program as a joint effort. Now, that's just that's within two weeks of him giving the speech to go to the moon. He's already having second thoughts. Uh, and it's mostly because of the cost that he fears that it's going to be an out of uh, out of control spending for NASA's efforts. Um Initially, Khrushchev says, yeah, uh, that's something we should talk about. And then that night, the hardliners got to him and says, you can't do this. If you do, if you turn this into a joint program, you will open up our military technology to American intelligence assets who will now understand how, ca how capable we are and especially how capable we are not. And uh, so the next day, Kennedy raised it again the second day. And uh, Khrushchev said, well, you know, that's important. We should probably talk about that down the road, but we really need to get a, uh, a nuclear test ban treaty in place. We need to talk about strategic arms limitation. And once we do all those things, we can, we can talk about a joint program to go to the moon. So nothing came of it at that point. But Kennedy returned to this over and over again. Uh, and and. Toward the end of his presidency, in September of 1963, he makes a public speech at the U.N. in which he proposes this one more time uh, in a very public setting. And, and, of course, nothing came of it because of his assassination in November of that particular year. But uh, it's fascinating to ponder what might have been had it, uh, had it not turned out that way. All right, I'm going to move on to the next slide, if that's okay. Uh, slide six. It's really about the astronauts. I've got a chapter on this, and I've tried to come to grips with these guys and what they mean. Uh, and it's sort of fascinating to think about it. So, uh, obviously, the Mercury 7, that's the group at the upper left on the slide initially. They... Um, uh, and that's survival training. That's a great picture of them and, uh, uh, you know, being out in the desert trying to get a, uh, uh, to survive for four or five days uh, without a lot of help. And uh, they became celebrities almost immediately, but so did all of the other astronauts. And, and uh, the ones that were in the classes after the 1959 Mercury 7 uh, became just as big, if not bigger, than uh, those that had that had preceded them. Uh, they become television stars in the lower left. You can see them on a Bob Hope special uh, in the mid-1960s with Barbara Eden uh, standing off to the left on that particular picture, uh, I Dream of Jeannie fame, and, um, and obviously gracing the covers of all kinds of magazines, 
the one, the picture on the right happens to be from Newsweek and right after the Apollo 8 mission, uh, the circumlunar flight to the moon. And there are many, many, many others that I can point to. But what is Roger. it about these? Roger? Yes, yes. This is Harley. This is Chris. At least on my version, it's a different photograph. It looks yeah. like it's a, it's a media, like an autograph at the Air and Space Museum in front yeah. of the uh, Harley, uh, okay. Uh, Harley, you can slide that photograph to the right, and the other, and his slide is, is, is it underneath the photograph. Sure yeah. enough. Sure okay. enough, you move it off. <laughs> Very good. Sorry, sorry about that. Maybe I shouldn't have made the slide that way, but uh, uh, I'm go I want to talk about that other picture in just a minute. But these okay. these three good. are from the time. Um, but the 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 real the real issue in my mind is uh, you know. What is it about these guys that uh, captures the imagination? First off, they're doing something that's new and different and exceptionally newsworthy. There is no question about that. And so there's a public interest in what they're doing that they had never seen before. And most of them came out of the, the military test pilot programs um, and – some of that effort, not all of it, but a fair amount of it was sort of uh, clothed in secrecy, uh, and, and they didn't become household names. Uh, a few of them did. Obviously, Chuck Yeager did, and, and, uh, and, and, and so did a few others, but most of them are not very well known. Uh, but they immediately, just by being named an astronaut, uh, gained an attention that they had never seen before. Um, but then they, they, Fill that bill beautifully. Uh, interestingly enough, you know, almost all of these uh, guys were military test pilots. They you often went to college either uh, to the service academies or to uh, or you know to some state university after they had completed some military and they went on the GI Bill. They were often, almost all the time, the first person in their family to attend college and get a degree. Um, and, and so I suggest that they are sort of every man. Uh, they are representative of, a, of, of the nation as a whole in a pretty fundamental way. And they are also our sort of our, our knights uh, doing battle in this Cold War environment, this space race environment. And, and we assign them that sort of, of, uh, of heroic status. And there's other things about them that are like that. And by the way, before I leave this question of, of, of education, there's really only one of them who went to an Ivy League school. Uh, as I say, most of them went to service academies or to a state university. So you find a lot of Ohio States and Purdue's and various other schools, uh, Georgia Tech and so on. But um, uh, but the only one who went to an Ivy League school was Pete Conrad, uh, who went to Princeton. His dad was a financier on Wall Street. He comes out of a, of a wealthy background. Uh, he's really the only one who does of these early astronauts. The um, and 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 Pete, by the way, spent the rest of his life sort of trying to run away from that background. Uh, he embraced, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, country western culture and loved to go to the cowboy bars in, in Houston and, and, uh, uh, wearing cowboy boots and on sawdust floors and drinking beer. Um, there, there's a great story that Bob Siemens told me, uh, in which, um, uh, and Siemens was a, uh, a, a 
a, a blue blood from Boston. He went to Harvard. Um, and he comes out of a upper class background. Uh, he said he would go to Houston to do work there, uh, in the 1960s. And at the end of the day, uh, the astronauts or whomsoever would like to drag him off to some, to some bar where they could get some beer. And he was used to going to the club and having, uh, a nice mixed drink or, a, or a sherry or something like that while reading the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it was a different environment for him, and he said he never fit in. He never felt like this was a place that, that was, that was, a, that was a, a, something that he was comfortable with. But, uh, but the astronauts sort of become the epitome of, of what it is a, uh, about this space program, and they are a very human face on a program that is otherwise pretty, pretty faceless. Uh, so I contend that they are exceptionally significant for how we think about Apollo and, quite frankly, how the public today thinks about human spaceflight because the astronauts still fulfill the same uh, role that they did in those days. There's more of them now. There's uh, the, Most of them don't necessarily have a name that, that many people recognize in the same way that, that – that some did during the during the 60s, but nonetheless, they're still in the same categories. So, uh, and and those early, and if you if you want to look at that other picture, uh, this is a photograph that I took in the National Air and Space Museum about five years ago, and uh, it's a book signing. Uh, the fellow that you can see at the desk is uh, Buzz Aldrin. And he had just published a book, and he's got this army of people. What you cannot see is the the line that goes all the way down to the milestones of flight hall, which is down in the middle of the building. And we're here in space in the space race exhibition uh, uh, on one side of the building, and there's there is more than five thousand people that are in line to have their have their books autographed by Buzz. Uh, so the presence. Of, uh, of this, of, of this persona of the astronauts is still very much with us. And, uh, and I suspect we'll be indefinitely. Roger? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is Rand Simberg. Uh, just in passing, it's, it's interesting to note that Pete Conrad was the most, and maybe, I, mean, I hadn't realized he was a finance, his father was a financier, but he was the most embracing of commercial space, I think, of all the astronauts. Well, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, he wanted to do it himself. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, right. And, and Pete, of course, was a uh, was, was something of a comedian as well. Um, he, he's one of my favorite astronauts, and um, and I, I I'm fascinated by his exploits. Uh, and of, and of course, I'm I'm chagrined by his tragic death in a motorcycle accident. Yeah, it was a huge loss. Yeah, you bet. Um, all right, uh, let's move on to. Can we move on. Uh, yeah. Comment. Uh, this is Doris Hamlet, NASA Langley. Um, one of the things I think uh, in in my memory, and I'm old enough to remember this era, um, that was so fascinating about the the, uh, the first generation, especially of astronauts, is spaceflight was perceived as phenomenally dangerous. We yeah. had been subjected to several years of watching rockets blow up. Right. And here is this coterie of men who said, yeah, put me on one of those, I'll fly it. And so I think that you know, part of the the aura of the astronaut corps was they were stepping up to do something that you know was nigh on crazy. Right, right. No, no question. 
but you know, at at some level, I mean, it's still risky. I mean, clearly, uh, that's the case. And and the astronauts today are are no less heroic and brave than those that uh, preceded them. Uh, but yes, uh, the perception was that it was a, a risky technology, and uh, uh, and you could lose your life pretty easily. And they. They had come out of a background where that was the case as well with uh, with test pilots. And, I mean, there was a year in the 1950s in which uh, uh, at Edwards they had lost, I think it was about 30 pilots in crashes. I mean, that's an enormous hit. Um, so, yeah, that was that was risky as well. Um, anybody got anything else? Or All right, can I move on to the flag? If you look at uh, at slide seven, uh, so you know one of the major ceremonial things that they did on the moon was plant the U.S. flag, and um, and it's a symbol of American prestige. It, de it it demonstrates to the world that the United States had done this and not somebody else. And um, there had there was a lot of controversy about that at the time. Uh, there were some arguing that maybe we should plant the UN flag, uh, or that maybe uh, there should be a big, uh, you know, plaque with all the flags of the Earth on it, uh, you know, something like that. And Congress solved that problem uh, in advance of the Apollo 11 mission, which when it, when it passed a, a bill that said uh, the only flag that's going to be on the moon is going to be the American flag, uh, and. But, but that ceremonial thing, you know, they did a flag raising at every single one of the missions, and they did it for very specific reasons to demonstrate this as an American accomplishment. And it, it really sort of underlines that issue of exceptionalism. Um, lots of people around the world didn't have a problem with that. Others did. Uh, others in other countries thought it was, uh, you know, a bit over the top. But one of the most interesting aspects of it to me uh, is that, you know, from from the time of the European expansion, really dating with Columbus, uh, every explorer, when they reach a new land, they will plant the flag of their sovereign, they will raise their sword to heaven, and they will claim that territory for the for the nation that they represent. The Americans, of course, planted the flag. Uh, they engaged in symbolic acts, but they they did absolutely the opposite of claiming territory. They said, we came in peace for all mankind. And that was a very specific difference, a very important difference. And uh, and so that flag approach uh, has been significant to us right up to the present. If you want to go to the next slide, slide eight, you will see various depictions of the flag as a fundamental part of uh, of Americans on the moon with Apollo. Uh, from Time Magazine, from a, a, a Rose Bowl parade float, um, and then if you you hit the button on the next thing, you see Andy Warhol's uh, uh, image uh, from the 1970s of the flag and the astronaut on the moon. Um, if you move on to the next slide, number nine, you will see commercial uses of the same thing. So MTV grabbed the famous uh, Buzz Aldrin picture of the planting of the flag and put their logo on the flag and have used it repeatedly. They continue to use um, uh, a statue 
of the flag raising uh, with an MTV logo on it for their Video Music Awards. McDonald's even got into the act. Other people have done so since that time. I, um, I've, I've been struck by how prolific this is. If you start looking in uh, magazines or uh, in video of various things, you will find it over and over and over again. It means something to us. And um, you may recall that last fall there was a kerfuffle over the uh, Neil Armstrong biopic, First Man, in which the flag raising is not included in the film. Now, there is a panorama that shows the flag uh, on the moon, but there was not the specific ceremonial event that we're familiar with from Apollo 11. And there were people who uh, rose up to complain about that. Uh, that suggests how significant this is right up to the present day. Americans did this, not other people. It's an example of our exceptional nature. Uh, uh, yeah. Question? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, this is question. Um, you know, uh, in some ways, uh, when you're calling this exceptionalism, it almost is uh, pejorative. Uh, you know, the American people were paying for this at the time. Uh, sure. Certainly the Soviet Union uh, considered it the same way, and just recently, but the Chinese, they've got a flag on their rover. So, Almost everybody that goes into space wants to be distinguished, whether you have, you know, a whole canopy of flags, but nonetheless, it's not without a flag. That would just be the opposite. So, uh, you know, knowing that day, um, you know, the flag, and not only that, the launch vehicle was a pretty patriotic symbol. Yeah, fair enough. I, I, I totally agree. All right, if you'd like to move on to, sli uh, to slide 10, l let me suggest to you, that advertising, and I showed that in the context of MTV and McDonald's a moment ago, uh, is broader than just flag stuff. Um, and, it, and it's amazing, some of the stuff that you can find out there. So here's a an ad for Canadian Club and for Tang. Everybody who recalls Apollo will remember Tang, uh, the drink that went with the astronauts to the moon. And... Um, and the uh, and the advertising that resulted from that, uh, Tang, which wasn't much of a company before uh, the space race, and is not much of a drink now, although it does still exist, um, really made a name for itself by uh, tying itself to uh, to the astronauts who went to the moon, and obviously earlier ones as well, but especially those in the moon. So here you can see a rover on the moon this morning. Uh, he will drink Tang is the tagline as the Earth is in the background. Just another example of the same sort of thing. If you uh, if you want to click the button to slide 11, you see more still. Um, my personal favorite is the one on the right, the VW. Uh, a full-page ad in a magazine. It's ugly, but it gets you there with the lunar module. Obviously, that's a that's an ad for a for a for a VW Beetle, uh, and uh, and I guess you could say the same thing about it. Um, let's move on to twelve. I recognize. I I think I need to draw this to a close before four. Am I correct? If you can, we can run a little bit late, um, but yeah, Roger. Um, or a few minutes later. Okay. All right. I, I, I should be on track. Okay. Um, so let's move on to 12. You know, one of the 
and, I, and I've got a series of five images that I talk about in the book that have sort of come to symbolize a lot of what uh, uh, we think of when we think of Apollo. And, uh, and it's an example of what I call vicarious exploration. Most of the people who, who experienced Apollo experienced it only through imagery and, and, uh, and some, uh, some footage, um, either television or, or motion picture footage that, uh, that was taken at the time. And, um, very few people actually experienced it firsthand. But, there's about a half a dozen images or so that have really come to be iconic, and I just wanted to raise those with you. The first one is, uh, and we've already seen this picture at, at some level, is the Buzz Aldrin, if you click the button, um, is the Buzz Aldrin image saluting the flag from Apollo 11. And um, for all the reasons that I suggested earlier, this is uh, a, a very specific and important um, uh, document of our landing on the moon and and the nature of Americans. Uh, the second image, if you click again, the footprint on the moon uh, in a different way symbolizes the same thing. What I find fascinating about this, uh, uh, Buzz Aldrin took this picture. Uh, he took several versions of it, including one in which his foot is uh, right next to the, to the uh, footprint. And um, uh, and the suggestion, since there is uh, uh, almost no seismic activity on the moon and um, and obviously no atmosphere to speak of, um, that will be in place for eons. And the suggestion that uh, perhaps somebody in the far distant future um, or some entity in the far distant future may not be human uh, – when they see this, we'll know that there's uh, an example of somebody else who's been there. Uh, unless we go and destroy it, and uh, that's a possibility. There's, uh, in, in my mind, there's great concern that uh, the first place people are going to want to go um, uh, when we, you know, routinely start going to the moon is to the Apollo 11 landing site. And uh, how do we preserve that site? Um, as we move forward, I, I, I have recommended and I have volunteered to be the first curator there who would put up the ropes and stanchions for the tourists. Uh, but NASA has not been willing to take me up on that yet. That usually gets a laugh. <laughs> but <laughs> well, this, we're all muted. Everybody's muted, yeah. yeah. But on the other <laughs> hand, once, I'm, uh, once at our, our PAO office, PAO folks, hear about your offer on our FISO seminar series, the phone calls will start coming in. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah, I've already told them about it. Roger? <laughs> Roger? Yes? This is Dallas. Uh, have, you, have you heard of For All Moon Kind, and are you uh, participating with them? Yes, I'm on the board. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're they're doing uh, good work trying to raise awareness as all and, and as as well as trying to negotiate the legal hurdles that do exist in terms of preservation of of a site which has uh, no legal standing uh, for any entity to take control of. Um, anyway, uh, that, that's for another time. The um, if you click the button again, you'll see a launch. This happens to be of Apollo 11. What I find fascinating, uh, I, I, probably many people on this uh, telecon have seen shuttle launches, um, and I'm, I have done so as well. And those are truly remarkable experiences, but I can only imagine how much 
more powerful an experience it is to have seen a Saturn V launch. Uh, 7.5 million pounds of thrust at launch under total human control. Uh, a great destructive force used for creative purposes, and uh, that is sort of represented in this particular image. Uh, it's a it's a uh, a fascinating thing. I would love to see, and I hope I will live to see um, SLS fly and uh, and us return to translunar and cislunar space. Uh, if you click the button one more time. You will see the Earthrise image, and we've all seen this a million times. It's used in all kinds of settings. It's often uh, fundamentally significant to our understanding of environmentalism and what it means to ourselves being uh, living on a little spaceship, Earth, and how it is the one place that we know where life can exist, it may exist other places, but we don't know that yet. And um, uh, and how there isn't any lifeboats, maybe we better take better care of it. And uh, so I think that this has been a rallying cry for uh, environmentalists around the globe in all kinds of settings. Uh, obviously, the picture from the moon from Apollo 8. The next picture is like that. If you click one more time, you'll see the whole Earth image uh, from Apollo 17. Um it's interesting that we didn't get a whole Earth picture uh, during earlier missions, but this one is a spectacular one, and you can obviously see Africa, the Middle East, and Antarctica here, um, and uh, has become the symbol for Earth Day, which we just had a couple of days ago, uh, around the globe. Finally, um, and if you click one more time, you'll see a picture, the, the famous picture of Buzz, uh, what I recall, what I call the Buzz full fronter. And um, that picture went around the world uh, immediately after the return of the Apollo 11 spacecraft and uh, has been uh, used in so many different ways since that time. Uh, really representative of our experience on the moon, as you see the astronaut in his suit. He, of course, is visored. You can't see a face, but you can see the reflection of uh, Neil, who took the picture and a part of the lunar module that, that's behind uh, or that Buzz is looking at in the, in the picture. Um, those images have really come to symbolize so much about uh, what we think about with Apollo. There, there were hundreds of thousands of images, but only a handful have really gotten a lot of resonance in terms of our public use. These are some that have right up to the present. Okay, why don't we move on? Slide 13. I, I, have a, I have a chapter that tries to look about how we export knowledge from Apollo uh, to solve other problems here on Earth. And, um, and here's a great example of one that we couldn't solve. Um, uh, this is a, there was a protest. Uh, Ralph Abernathy read, led a group of um, uh, in, a, in what they called the Poor People's Campaign to uh, to the Kennedy Space Center at the time of the Apollo 11 launch, and um, and they were there to protest the expenditure of funds on this as opposed to all the people who are suffering in the United States who deserve uh, some of those uh, some of that largesse as well. And you can see the caption or uh, the the 
the poster that the young girl is holding, Billions for Space and Pennies for the Hungry. And that's that's a very real issue. You know, there are some things that NASA was well-connected to try to help with. And some of the problems of cities, especially uh, uh, the use of technology to um, uh, to have better control of uh, the infrastructure that the city operates, um, the 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 infrastructure for transportation, for utilities, and those sorts of things lend themselves to a technological fix. And NASA could really help with those sorts of things, and it did. But some of the really difficult problems, uh, especially the social challenges that are out there, uh, the differences between rich and poor, uh, NASA couldn't fix those. And the quote from Tom Paine, this is a memo that's in the NASA history office uh, that uh, is a memo for record that Tom Paine, who was the NASA administrator in 1969, wrote after he went over to meet with uh, Ralph Abernathy um, talked about how they were standing there and talking about this, and he said, you know, if I could solve these problems that you were talking about, speaking to Reverend Abernathy, by not pushing the button to send the astronauts to the moon, I would not push that button. But this is not a problem that we can solve. And he and he did say, you know, I, we th we think that this is a priority. The, the nation has made this a priority, and we are going to accomplish this end. And we recognize that there should be more attention paid to some of these other concerns, which are, which are very real. He didn't minimize them at all. Um, but if you if you would be supportive of us, we would appreciate that. And then, of course, then. Uh, he invited some of the people from the Poor People's March to come into the uh, VIP viewing area, including Ralph Abernathy, to see um, uh, the launch itself. He asked Reverend Abernathy to say a prayer on behalf of the astronauts and their safety, which Abernathy was happy to do. And he went on to say that he was just as proud of Americans as anyone in accomplishing this feat. But we need to talk about the people who are poor, the people who are hungry, and how can we do things to alleviate their suffering as well. And by the way, Tom Paine agreed with that. Um, so there's an example of some of these issues at play. And, and they've continued to play out right up to the present. Uh, and you've I know everybody who's in the space community has heard people complain about the dollars that go into space flight versus what we might do with those dollars in another way. Uh, somehow thinking that th that money is expended uh, someplace other than in the United States. Every dollar is spent here on Earth, as we all know, and it turns over at least seven times, probably more than that. In fact, there's uh, there's a study done from 1971 that suggested a seven-to-one return on investment for every dollar spent on Apollo. Uh, there are other studies that have come up with similar numbers, even higher numbers in a few instances uh, about this. So, um, so that's an indirect benefit, but one that's really uh, quite significant. Okay, uh, let's move on to slide 14. Uh, Apollo and race relations is a 
fundamental issue, and we see it at some level with the protest by Ralph Abernathy and the Poor People's Campaign, but uh, but also in other settings. So you can see the the cartoon on the left uh, about uh, U.S. space progress and riding the capsule above, and U.S. race progress and a broken down uh, probably mule and a wagon down below with people looking up. Uh, that's another example of the same sort of issue. Uh, but beyond that is something where it was really, uh, you know, a, a difficult thing. Uh, on the right slide, uh, at the time of the Apollo 17 flight, uh, you can see the uh, uh, you can see the illustration. Apollo project is over, but with two African Americans in spacesuits saying maybe we'll go next time, and. Uh, and maybe so. It 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 is um, one of the difficulties of the 1960s that NASA did not step out uh, and have African American astronauts as a part of the cadre. Uh, there were some attempts to try to move in that direction. Uh, it didn't seem to work out. One who came very close uh, was killed in a, a high performance airplane crash before anything took place. Um, and we had to wait until the astronaut class in 1978 before there was the first African American or any other minority uh, astronaut uh, appointed to the to the Corps. Um, and and that is a very real issue as we move forward, and something else to be thought about in the context of the 50th anniversary of Apollo. Let's move on to slide 15. Uh, well, I already talked about this a little bit. This is uh, uh, this is about abandoned in place and and um, uh, launch complex uh, 34. And you can see down in the lower left picture, stenciled on the leg of the uh, launch tower is abandoned in place. Uh, if anybody's been to that site, you know how desolate it is. Uh, the right hand picture is uh, uh, is as the as the launch is being prepared to take place in the 1960s. Uh, but there are many sites associated with Apollo, uh, some of which have been totally destroyed, others of which have been preserved in pretty good shape, uh, some of which have been uh, modified for use in a different way, uh, like Launch Complex 39, and lastly, uh, the, the sites on the moon. I'd like to put a big... Uh, you know, a, 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 a big uh, a glass dome over all of the Apollo landing sites and not let anybody get close to them. Um, that's not in the in the cards, but uh, we do need to take action to try to preserve. We do know that wherever people go, if there are no rules in place, they do stuff that damages whatever is around them. Uh, and we don't want to have happen what happened in Antarctica. Uh, in which years of people coming in and out of there on scientific expeditions. These are people who are uh, not your normal tourists who carve their initials into uh, into Scott's hut at uh, McMurdo Station and things of this nature until there was efforts to try to preserve it. Uh, and if we don't do something on the moon, before we get back there, I guarantee you there will be uh, destruction of those sites as well. Uh, so it's a it's an item for future activities. Uh, the next slide uh, talks a little bit about um, the issue of nostalgia, and um, and I use the Apollo 13 movie from 1995 to talk about this. Um, it's very much an example of um, 
of what we want to think about ourselves. Once again, it's that heroic sort of uh, uh, exceptional story uh, in which you have an accident en route to the moon. The crew is in danger, no question about that, but uh, through the uh, the hard work and perseverance of both the crew and all the people on the ground, uh, they're able to bring them back alive. And it's one more example of a representation of uh, of this exceptional nature. Um, and that's the kind of story we want to think of when we think of Apollo. Uh, not necessarily the one from First Man, the movie from last year, which did cause some controversy. Let's go on to page or to slide 17. Uh, I've already talked about this, so I'm not going to say any more. But uh, uh, the lunar landing sites, I think, are really uh, the ones we need to work on. There's been efforts since the early 1970s to try to preserve them. The president received an offer uh, in 1971 to buy the artifacts on the moon with the idea that somebody would go get them. Um, there's been offers since that time. There's been efforts since that time. In every single case, the National Park Service, which, administ which administers our national uh, historic sites, uh, has claimed that they have no jurisdiction. The United Nations has claimed the same thing, and that's sort of where we are. We'll see if that changes in the next few years. There has to be a change to the legal status before any formal preservation can take place. If you go to slide 18... So, uh, so you can see Walter Cronkite holding up the New York Times from the day after the moon landing, and um, and there are those who think we never did it. Uh, not very many, but a few. Uh, it's one of the most watched and listened to events that ever that ever took place in human history around the globe, and so lots of people participated in it in a vicarious manner, uh, and uh, and. That very small percentage of people, uh, regardless of that, say it never happened. There's a great story from the time of Apollo 11 in which one of the journalists from the New York Times wrote a story about how he walked into a bar um, and was talking to some of the some of the bar flies there, and they're all spouting that we never did it. Uh, and it's all just something that was uh, made up for public consumption. Well, you know, for those of us who watch Cheers, uh, Cliffy and Norm might say those sorts of things, but uh, that doesn't mean they're very well informed, and that's the sort of issue that I think we uh, we see over and over again. There's a lot of people who are not very well informed who chose to disbelieve, um, and uh, and maybe through naivete as much as anything. My grandfather was in this category. Uh, he uh was a man of the 19th century he was born in the 1890s uh he died in 1984 uh he farmed his entire life he never had that much education basic basic education but nothing beyond that uh and he just couldn't believe that they had done this um but I, he's not a guy you should listen to on this score um you know he he farmed his entire life, but he always used horses. He never used a tractor. In his mind, tractors were a passing fad. So consequently, uh, you can't rely on that, and you shouldn't rely on him about this kind of thing. So I think there's some folks who are naive. Uh, not their fault necessarily. They're just naive. Um, there are others who uh, just want to be... Uh, 
uh, cantankerous, I think. Uh, and every year when I was at the Smithsonian, at the National Air and Space Museum, I would give a, uh, a lunchtime talk around the time of the Apollo anniversary about this denial of the moon landings. And there was always at least one per, and by the way, they were very well attended. Everybody loved to hear about this. Um, and there was always somebody in the audience who wanted to pick a fight uh, with me about this. And was, well, what about this picture? What about that picture? And, uh, and so on. And by the way, there are always good answers to all of those kinds of questions. Uh, but, uh, but I, I think, you know, part of it is a sense of, of, oh, I know something you don't know. And, uh, and that's at issue with this as well. Then there are those who are doing this because they view it as a, as a paycheck. And, uh, there are some conspiracy advocates out there who are basically in it to make money. And, uh, and they're selling books and DVDs and other paraphernalia to try to uh, uh, to capitalize on this particular idea. And, and Americans love conspiracy theories. We love this kind of stuff. Um, we, we embrace it in so many settings. Um, and, and to the extent that the majority of Americans believe some of these things, like you know, whether or not Kennedy was assassinated by by one person or by a conspiracy of people. It's probably a majority of the public who believe it was a conspiracy at this point, even though the evidence is not good uh, that that was the case. So um, I, I think there's a lot of that that's, that's present. The thing that concerns me more and more about this is as time passes and the Apollo landings are farther into the past, and fewer people remember them. It might be easier to embrace these kinds of ideas. And uh, the ability to communicate those uh, is everywhere. Uh, pretty fundamentally, everything shifted when the Internet came online and people could put up whatever they wanted to uh, on web pages or social media. And um, before that, the people who were engaged in these kinds of things, you know, they write pamphlets or something and pass them out. But that had a not a very broad audience. Uh, these other things have a very broad audience, and they're spe especially attractive to young young people. Uh, and when they do a do a Google search, you know, and they pop up a bunch of stuff, all that stuff looks equal to them. Uh, whether it's a NASA site or a good university site or, or, or something else uh, is sort of meaningless in the context of these sorts of searches. So I do think this is something that we need to look at and be concerned about moving forward. And it, it behooves every educator uh, and, and obviously those of us who engage with, with students especially to um, to answer these questions, and usually it's 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 questions uh, as as opposed to somebody stomping their feet and announcing, no, we didn't land on the moon. Um, and and so there's a responsibility, I think, that that those of us who know the truth, and believe me, this is true, um, they need we need to to be adamant about that. Roger. Um, yeah. That's Rand again. Uh, I occasionally tweet, uh, tongue only partially in cheek, that in the 60s, a state of technology was such that we could go to the moon, but we couldn't fake it. Today, it's the other way around. 
Yeah. Well, that, okay. Fair enough. Uh, that, that's true. And, uh, you know, one of my bottom line comments on this is, let me tell you, we were doing this as a part of a space race with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was our enemy. And uh, they had both the capability and the desire to disprove this if it was true. <laughs> or, you know, if we hadn't landed on the moon but were faking it. And they never said a word. So uh, that, that's a pretty strong uh, element to me. Uh, and I, And that's a... I mean, it's a fascinating story as, as this has unfolded in the 50 years since the moon landings. But there is an interesting component to this. And, and I want to say something about that before we... Before so, we and, this is, and, and Roger, this is Harley. It's, it's oh, I need to draw to a close, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's go to the next slide then. Kind of, kind of quickly. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm fine. So the next slide is basically some personal reflections on Apollo. Uh, some of those people you know, like Leroy Chow, uh, and others like Craig Ferguson, the Scottish uh, late-night talk show host, who said he was so jazzed by watching the moon landing as a child, he wanted to become an American. Um, and with that, I will quit. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. And we have uh, – good reason, yes. Yeah, we've run out of time, so we're not going to be able to take any questions. We had questions during Roger's presentation. I've already ordered your book, Roger, on Amazon. Uh, Great. 18, 18 bucks, so you get whatever share you will get, and I should receive it uh, mid-May. I'm looking yeah. forward to it, as always. And, and, Roger, you're always welcome to come back to our Pfizer seminar. So, well. Thank you very much. I appreciate everybody listening. I'm sorry I rattled on like I did. I would much prefer to have questions. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.